This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well, we haven't run out of history quite yet. Welcome everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm your co-host Tony Black, and with me is my co-host Duncan Barrett. Hi Tony. How are you this week, Duncan? I'm not bad, I'm not bad. How are you? Yeah, not, not, not too bad. Looking forward to our second episode of uh, Primitive Culture after our uh, pilot last week, in which uh, hopefully you all became affiliated with the concept and you've enjoyed what we've given you so far. This week, we are going to be uh, venturing into the first half. We've decided we're going to do various different kind of recurring sort of topics, really, over primitive culture. We've got lots of little ideas for subtopics and subcategories of things and things like that. And the first one we thought we'd do is comparing an episode of Star Trek to a well-known film that it is inspired by. And in this case, we are going to compare the uh, season four Next Generation episode, The Mind's Eye, with its major inspiration, The Manchurian Candidate, which was, of course, a novel. Then it was a well-known movie in the 1962, and then subsequently remade in 2004. So we're going to get into that throughout the episode. We're going to talk about the movie. We're going to talk, obviously, about the episode and about what Geordie LaForge goes through throughout that, and give you a bit of the cultural and historical context to the episode itself and the movie and everything like that. But before we do... We thought that we would introduce uh, ourselves a little more. And over the next two episodes, we're going to talk about how we got into Star Trek. And in case you don't know us massively well, some of you will, uh, who are on the Babel Conference and listen to Trek FM, but some of you may not know us hugely well. So we thought over the next two episodes, we would, uh, one at a time, introduce our love of Star Trek and what got us into Star Trek. So you're going to go first, Duncan, this week. I will. Okay, yeah. <laughs> this is my confessional. <laughs> Here we go, yeah. As uh, like a younger kid, I, I'd seen the odd episode of the original series because I think they were on reruns on the BBC, uh, like in the kind of early evening. And I, I'd seen one or two. I'm pretty sure I saw Devil in the Dark at a friend's house. But it never really, I don't know, it never, I was sort of aware of it in the background, but it never really resonated with me. But it was really... Um, when I was uh, uh, about 11 or 12, I was off school sick for several months with glandular fever or mono for the, that's for the Americans uh, out there listening. And basically I was just really exhausted and kind of um, feeble, <laughs> uh, too tired to, to read or to do anything much. So I was just lying in bed and I'd got into watching a few episodes of Next Gen uh, when we'd been visiting my cousins who lived in Dublin um, and they had a Sky TV subscription so they were getting those episodes. 
And so I'd kind of just had my interest sort of peaked by watching a few episodes. And I discovered that our local Blockbuster video store had um, like all of Next Gen up to that point. I think it, it must have still been, it was probably in like the sixth or seventh season, maybe by that point, so something like that. 1993, 94, is that? Yes, yeah. probably. Uh, that'd be about right. Yeah. So, so it was kind of, it w- was still screening, but again, like we weren't, we weren't getting it on RTV. So I basically watched TNG on videos, on VHS tapes. Um, every couple of days I get my mum to go and, and get these tapes. Lee Hutchison, if he's interested, will, 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 if he's listening, will be interested in all this because we were going through, you know, these, these old uh, blockbuster tapes, which had, I think they had four episodes per tape rather than two, like the ones that you buy. So I basically just sort of worked my way through TNG that way. And I think it must have been around the same time that DS9 started because I do remember watching that whenever that started on the BBC, watching that from the beginning. So that was sort of how I got into Star Trek. And I kind of had this real, you know, initial blitz of of going through this huge back catalogue and then getting into DS9 and Voyager. I kind of dipped out uh, around the time of Enterprise. Partly, you know, a lot of people, I think, weren't that keen on Enterprise, really. They didn't think it was necessarily what they were looking for. But I think also, for me, it, it coincided with, like, going to university and kind of you know life moving on a bit and so then for a long time I just sort of I dip into the odd episode I mean I had all the DVDs and so on I'd kind of you know watch one or two episodes now and then but I never was really as like obsessive a Star Trek fan as I had been in those in those sort of early years um and then really funnily enough it was uh my son was born um he's getting up to he's nearly two now so so getting on for two years ago now and I think someone had posted something online on my facebook feed uh about it was actually about women at warp it was before women at warp joined trek fm and then obviously subsequently they left and i started listening to that and i found that really interesting just to hear people talking about star trek and talking about these kind of ideas and so on and that sort of piqued my interest and so and then they joined trek fm and that sort of piqued my interest in trek fm and so i started listening to all these trek fm podcasts and that made me start wanting to go back and kind of get back into my old dvd collection and check out you know episodes i maybe hadn't seen for a long time uh and also to give enterprise a try i I listened to quite a few episodes of warp five and i thought all right well i better better give this a go and you know (laughs) give it a proper try so that was that really and then uh and then last year um i i committed myself to doing the uh from there to here rewatch and watching the whole thing which was i don't know if you attempted that i know you, you did a few episodes of that show didn't you I, think, Tony? I was just getting into trek fm at the at the point they were about three quarters of the way through it you did a broadcast from the um convention then that's what i was thinking of it must have been around the, that that was last year as well uh, wasn't it? sort of i'd been like on the babel conference for like two weeks and then i was immediately going right let's all meet up and i had a sign that said trek fm and i was holding it up at this at the um the 50th anniversary thing in birmingham uk that was great i mean i i, I love doing that partly just because i i'd found that whole um experience quite amazing really going back and watching you know in some cases watching episodes i actually had never seen uh with enterprise and also uh, quite a few original series episodes that i'm pretty sure i'd never seen <laughs> or if i had I'd, I'd completely blocked them out uh, but also just going through this great sort of nostalgia trip so once i kind of hit the the phase of tng that i you know remembered from when i was uh, stuck in my bedroom off sick off school for for months at a time and those you know getting into ds9 again and that kind of whole arc building up again really all these kind of memories came back to me of, of watching these episodes the first time around you know 20 whatever it is odd years ago back when i was at school so it was quite a kind of quite that was quite a sort of nostalgia trip really i guess doing the whole from there to here thing so that kind of brings me to where i am now the other thing i should have mentioned is um when i was a teenager when i got into 
Star Trek then, the kind of... So I spent a lot of time watching a lot of Star Trek. I wrote my mum into watching a lot of Star Trek. Um, she's an English professor, uh, and she decided... I don't know why. She, just, she, she got so interested. Maybe she felt she'd, spent, she'd wasted so much time watching Star Trek, she might as well uh, make something out of it. So she, she wanted to write a book about Star Trek, about the kind of cultural, historical influences and so on, which is sort of what we're doing here, really. And so she sort of took, got me involved in that initially as a sort of consultant, and then I ended up sort of writing a chunk of it. So that's sort of how I got into writing as well, really, was, was working on this book. And then last year, for the 50th, the publishers said they wanted a new edition, but they wanted it to kind of bring everything up to date um so that was another reason why i was you know having to go back and watch enterprise in some episodes for the first time and kind of get my head around it in order to kind of update this uh you know whatever it is um 15 year old book so yeah that's that's kind of pretty much me that's that's sort of where i am now it's quite nice you, you know now to be doing something like this where we're just looking at a few episodes at a time looking at them in a bit more detail kind of looking at the, the background to them and so on because i guess that's that's always been some of the side of of Star Trek that interests me is is the sort of ideas and that you know I'm not really into it for the space battles and so on I know I know some people are but uh I'm more interested in the kind of dilemmas and the historical parallels and the literary parallels and and that kind of thing well that that's that's actually queued up nicely what I was going to ask you as a follow-on which was what was it that drew you to Star Trek I think probably I mean this is a cliched answer but I think it's the kind of optimism of it in a way it's that kind of sense of it's this is a future that you actually want to live in quite rare in science fiction to be honest to, to find that and I suppose also that kind of the crew dynamic that kind of sense of a family you know I mean TNG in particular it's a very sort of warm it's a very appealing place I think to be do you know what I mean you, you you'd love to be on that ship with those people having those adventures week to week probably more so than say Deep Space Nine or, or you, you, maybe the same is true of Voyager but you might not want to be in their in their situation but I think there's something just very appealing about it really um from that point of view and, and maybe it sort of appealed to me as well since I was you know sort of bed bound at the time <laughs> this idea of sort of going out and you know adventuring and seeing the universe yeah I think I think that's that's the case that would be the case for a lot of young people really but it's like you said some people were admittedly and I'll get more into this next week but admittedly I was into it more when I was a young person for the space battles and for the you know for the action adventure side of it yeah and as you grow older you know taste change the way you look at it changes really so it's uh it is interesting how how Star Trek comes to enter your life as well as the as well as the journey towards it what keeps you going on the journey really especially as you grow into an adult because that's when the experience changes a little well that's one of the things I found interesting about the from there to here rewatch as well was just going back to some episodes that maybe you know that have a different resonance I mean like say I mentioned my son being born you know a lot of uh, say something like The Visitor, you watch an episode like that, if you've had life changes like that, it's going to affect how you how you read that, how you interpret it. And, and also just like, you know, global changes. Um, I mean, I, I think I, I posted something on the Babel conference. I was watching Darmok the day of the um, Brexit referendum result. And that seemed... It, it, it really affected me because, I mean, like, I was disappointed by the result, uh, you know, and kind of upset about that. But actually watching this sort of very high-minded a very optimistic vision of the future and of these you know these these two noble characters who were so committed to communication and kind of getting past their differences and working together and so on i found that that it had a whole different level of, of resonance and meaning in a sense because it was so such a disconnect from the the real world that we were living in at that moment and the kind of things that were going on in the news and the and the kind of political discourse and so on so um 
you know, obviously, every time you go back to these things, you've changed, the world's changed, um, and you, you go back with a, a new set of eyes, in a way, and a different a different way of looking at it yeah and that's the beauty of star trek isn't it you know that you can you can go through life and you can experience it in you know in different ways as, as age comes along and you change and you as a person change and life experiences change you know you can experience star trek multiple times in multiple different ways so that's that is the beauty Definitely. of it yeah and you can enjoy the space battles as well i don't, I don't mean suggest that i was <laughs> i was lying in bed bored by by the space battles or whatever <laughs> certainly uh you know when ds9 came around and some of oh, those yeah. um those that, that you know i was just thrilled by all that as as the next fan but um so yeah we'll um we'll get into my star trek journey next week uh, we thought we'd split them up just so we can get into our main topic of conversation a little bit quicker and then you know you can be left on a little cliffhanger for what i think next week mm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> i'll be on tenterhooks oh yeah yeah so yeah we're gonna we're gonna now talk about our main topic for this episode which is as i said at the top of the podcast talking about the uh the episode The Mind's Eye from Season 4 of The Next Generation in relation to The Manchurian Candidate, which uh, uh, is two movies, uh, uh, an original and a remake, and a book. So the interesting thing is that The Mind's Eye is directly inspired by The Manchurian Candidate. So before we go any further, um, Duncan, why don't you summarise The Manchurian Candidate a little bit for us, the uh, the story of that movie? Well, basically, the, the story of the movie, and, and the, mo- the original movie is pretty uh, close to the book. It's a fairly faithful adaptation with only a, you know, a, a couple of interesting changes, but it basically follows it very closely. It's about an American uh, platoon. They're in Korea, in the Korean War, and they get captured by the enemy and basically hypnotised, brainwashed, and one of them in particular, the, the central character, Raymond Shaw, is turned into a, an assassin, a, a kind of, you know, people use the phrase a zombie assassin. I mean, basically, he, he's put under this kind of hypnotic spell so that he can be used by the communists um, in America to, to carry out their wishes. And, um, and so it, during the course of the story, uh, he kills various people. I don't know if I want to give away too much of the plot, but anyway, there's there's a kind of political intrigue. We probably will have to at some point, but but the, it's a political thriller, so it's it concerns the nomination process for. We assume, though, I don't think it's ever said the Republican Party. They're they're putting together their presidential candidates, um, and there's in particular uh, a candidate who is a very clear McCarthy character, basically rabidly anti-communist character, uh, and he is actually Raymond Shaw's stepfather. And Raymond Shaw's mother, who is a terrifying, uh, evil woman, basically, <laughs> yeah. is is really is really pushing this uh, her second husband uh, to try and get him onto the vice presidential uh, slot for the in the nomination. And with the plan, the ultimate plan of the of the communists um, is that then the presidential nominee will be assassinated, and this McCarthy character will uh, end up being president. And and th- there's this sort of the, the kind of Cold War aspect is that he, um, you know, he, he's such a fool that he's and so uh, exaggerated and over the top and ridiculous that he's actually sort of a, a communist asset in a sense. And apparently, this was from a, a quotation that the the author of the novel had read, where someone, which which is replayed in the book and in the film, someone says this basically. Someone said of McCarthy, he couldn't be doing. A, a sort of a, a better job of undermining the United States if he was actually a communist agent, basically. So that was the sort of argument. It's a very, um, I mean, this comes across in the film, but particularly in the novel, it's a very sort of spiky satire. So it is a thriller. It's quite exciting. It's quite engrossing. But it's also, the novel in particular has a real kind of cool, detached 
approach to all these things and, and really kind of playing up how how ridiculous uh, the, the politics is, how ridiculous all these people are and so on, and, and kind of um, and showing them up, I suppose, in a way. It's quite, it's quite a dark film in many respects as well, and it shines a, it shines a light on, on the, the dark side of the, of the American political system of that time. The Mind's Eye is a, a similar plotline, really, a similar kind of story in some respects. It's, it's an episode where Geordie is uh, basically ordered to go on to Riser for a conference to have a holiday. So he's off on his travels. He's on a shuttle uh, and he gets uh, abducted by a Romulan warbird uh, on, on the way to Riser before he can get there. And he is conditioned. And as the uh, as Data later says, the uh, inaccurate term brainwashing <laughs> happens. And he's, uh, he's brainwashed by the Romulans to go back to the Enterprise as they send a, a fake, almost Geordie looking like Geordie to Riser. <laughs> like uh, LeVar Burton standing or yeah, something. Yeah, it must have been. <laughs> I mean, so this guy who goes to Riser and he takes the visor, doesn't he? So that presumably so the visor can record everything. So then is the implication, because Geordie comes back thinking that he has had this wonderful holiday on Riser and met this girl and, you know, had some good experiences there and so on. Is the implication that this guy that the Romulans sent, this, this was the holiday that he had, basically. <laughs> you know, he had a great time and he <laughs> <laughs> he won the chess tournament and he met this girl and so on. I mean, I couldn't help wondering, who who is this guy? <laughs> you know, where did they get him from? And is he brainwashed as well or, or what? Well, I mean, you know, if, if we if we look at, um, not that this would have been in the writing, but if we look at Nemesis as a as an example, there's every possibility they might have somehow got Geordie's DNA, as all the DNA of a lot of Starfleet officers, and he's a, a sort of clone, a bit like Shinzon would have been for Picard. Who, who knows? It's possible. But yeah, he he's sent back to uh, the Enterprise just as the Enterprise is getting involved in a very de- delicate situation uh, involving a planet called Krios, which is on the border between the uh, the, fe- the the Federation and the Klingon Empire, and uh, he becomes embroiled in a plot to uh, assassinate the governor of this Kriosian uh, planet in order to, uh, in in theory, foster um, bad relations between or even potentially start a war between the Klingons. And the Federation, and he, and the storyline follows a very similar path with Geordi under the Romulan influence, having been indoctrinated in. And, and this, this is the thing: there are very, very similar scenes when you watch the Manchurian Candidate and you watch the the Mind's Eye. And, and as I say, the Manchurian Candidate was the direct inspiration. The director David Livingston was a big fan of John Frankenheimer, who uh, directed the movie, and uh, he intentionally tried to get as many direct links to that movie as possible into the story. There are very similar scenes involving, in the original movie, there is this really creepy set of scenes involving the flashbacks to the to Raymond Shaw and the rest of his platoon, who've all been, many of whom have been kidnapped and brainwashed by the the communist Chinese who are trying to influence everything, and they and it's seen through different viewpoints, and that their their perception of who is really there is is altered, and they're ordered to kill um, one of their platoon, and in this case, Geordi is being bred on a fake version of 10 forward to murder chief o'brien and it's uh, there are a lot of little scenes that that directly mirror the manchurian candidate and it is essentially the same plot line where geordie is being brainwashed in it as part of the the cold war element to the to the star trek universe which has always been on in different ways the klingon empire and the federation and the romulan empire and the federation so even though you have a direct with the mind's eye, you have quite a clear through line of a of a thriller story involving Geordie having been brainwashed, and then the subplot of Picard having to deal with a a very spiky Romulan governor and a a delegate who's who's come to actually try and you know assist with the talks, and and the and the also the subplot of Worf and his discommendation and 
and everything like that, and rippling when he has to deal with the Klingons. Underneath it, there is a lot going on in terms of the wider Star Trek universe and the Cold War aspects, and also teeing up the season four finale. Yes, because this is the first... Uh well, I was going to say sight is not quite a sight, but we, we, we hear Sela's voice, yes. don't we? And we uh, and we see her in the shadows. She's this kind of shadowy puppet master. And it's it's a rare it's a rare example of the next generation actually doing this. Actually, like DS Nine was a lot more for this kind of thing, setting up later villains and plot lines. The, the next generation didn't do it very often, so there was there was the level of intrigue that is unusual for the show itself in this episode. But there's. There's a lot going on, not just in terms of being directly lifting from the Manchurian Candidate, but for the Star Trek universe as a whole, isn't it? It's quite interesting. You, you, you're talking about that, that scene where um, Geordie has to kill O'Brien. I mean, it, it, it's very reminiscent of the film. It's, it's, it's very reminiscent. It, and what's interesting about it, what I think is, is very effective in the film, that it kind of lifts from that, is this sense of um, that the brainwashed person is not they're not necessarily completely kind of cold. They're not necessarily... They're not a zombie, essentially. They're kind of... They, they can have a sort of almost conversational interaction with the person. And that's what's kind of freaky about it. If you look at that scene in the original film, I mean, aside from the fact that they all think they're in what... They, they've basically... They've been hypnotised to think they're a, a gathering of old ladies talking about yeah. um, hydrangeas <laughs> when, in fact, they're, they're in front of all these uh, communist top brass. Um, so there's a kind of comedy in it, but there's also this kind of really chilling... Uh, aspect that t- two of their group end up being killed by this guy Raymond to sort of demonstration that the technique works but they're very um, sort of chatty about it you know he's sort of saying oh excuse me can I come over here and, and, and they're kind of almost making jokes and so on and, and when he starts strangling this guy he just starts he, he sort of says hey you know lay off lay off and, and then the, the um, sort of chief hypnotist guy basically says no no you be quiet you be quiet and then he murders him and there, there's something really eerie about that and, and you get a little bit of a flavor of that in the 10 forward scene because geordie as he thinks uh murders chief o'brien and then the the romulan sort of brainwashing character who's played by the guy um who was uh the lead Sulaban in in enterprise uh john fleck really sinister uh you know great sinister actor he, he he says, oh, why don't you sit down and have a drink with your friends? And so Geordie then goes down and has a sort of friendly drink and a chat with these other two guys who were previously drinking with O'Brien, uh, while O'Brien's corpse is just sort of lying there on the floor next to him. And it's this sort of like this disconnect between these kind of the horrific things that are happening and this kind of just cheery sort of other world in a sense that the that the killer is experiencing is you know it is really chilling and it is also is an interesting parallel between the two the, between the film and the episode yeah even even to the point that you know livingston makes a point of shooting it in a very similar way as well there's, there's the shot of o'brien with his eyes open dead is exactly very similar to the shot of of one of the characters in the uh, the hydrangea scene when he's been killed and he's been strangled you just see him with his eyes open on the floor as you know, Raymond goes off and, and sits back down again, and it's so it, it's very much it's very much a direct parallel. And I, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that Star Trek chooses, and this isn't the first time I'm sure we'll do an episode like this where we compare an episode to a movie. It's very interesting that they manage to take specific films and specific ideas and port them into the Star Trek universe. And, it, and in the mind's eye, I think it works very well because. The underlying thing in, in terms of behind the Manchurian Candidate, which came out in 1962 and the book came out before then, it was still very much in the Cold War era. You know, it was still in the uh, very much it, after after what we talked about in the previous episode involving Oppenheimer and the creation of the bomb and, and the beginnings of, of the Cold War after the Second World War. The Cold War at this point, I mean, 1962 was the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is the closest the Russians and the 
the Americans ever came to nuclear conflict over the entire span of the Cold War. So it came out at a very, very difficult political time. And it came out at a point where the Cold War was at its peak. And this idea of these two opposing ideologies and these two opposing empires who were, as Oppenheimer described them, like scorpions in a bottle. You know, one side can attack the other one, but they'll they'll kill themselves by doing it to the point that they didn't, you know, and it was the mutually assured destruction thing. There's a very similar thing going on in the in the Star Trek universe in different ways with the Klingons and with the, the Romulans specifically. You know, the, the Klingons are historically, you know, analogous in many ways to the to the, the Russian bear, whereas the the Romulans are analogous to the very the quietly sinister and, and Chinese influencing everything going on. And those are those are the two parallels that are drawn very quickly in the, in the 60s in their own way, but even in the 90s when you have episodes like this and the 80s, because the Cold War is either coming towards an end or has ended, and it had ended, I think, around the time this episode came out, it was just ending. The, the, uh, the, the Berlin War came down around this point, I think. So it, it's interesting how they decide to port these bigger ideas about the Cold War into the Star Trek universe. Well, it's interesting also. I mean, we're, you know, we're sort of focusing today mainly on the mind's eye because uh, it's a very, like you say, it's a very sort of one-to-one adaptation. It's, it, you know, it's basically an adaptation of the Manchurian Candidate. But, you know, there are other Star Trek episodes that take this idea. Um, in Voyager, there's the episode Repression, where Tuvok becomes a sort of basically hypnotised. He's not quite killing people. He's, he's putting them in a coma and, and reprogram, reprogramming them himself. But there's, there's also the DS9 episode, Inquisition, and that kind of plays on... Th- th- this is the, the one that introduces Section 31 and, and the, the claim, which turns out to be wrong in that instance, is that Bashir has basically been programmed in this way and he's, he's uh, compartmentalised his brain and forgotten who he's working for and what he's doing. And in DS9, it definitely plays on that kind of Cold War, Red Scare kind of uh, atmosphere that's in a way under pinning the original film because you you know you've got this sense uh with the founders in particular that because they can impersonate people there's this thing that exactly as it was with the communists in the 1950s and the 1960s you don't you know you don't know who to trust you don't know it, uh i mean in the film basically the mccarthy character um senator Eitelin, uh, is is constantly accusing people of being communists, or is constantly saying, "Oh, I, there are two hundred and seventy communists in in this department of the government," or or, or so on. And that's definitely the kind of um, the the mood, in a way, that Deep Space Nine picks up on with with those kind of anxieties about the Dominion and the fact that people might have been replaced by founders. And so the the Deep Space Nine episode really kind of plays on that, and and also the sense of a kind of a witch hunt, you know, because Bashir is basically being treated in that episode uh, outside of the kind of legal, uh, you, you know, the proper channels in a sense. It's basically a kind of McCarthy witch hunt being conducted against him. Uh, and this claim that he's betrayed his own, uh, you know, he's betrayed the Federation, that he's he's a traitor and so on. It very much ties into these kind of anti-communist rhetoric of uh, of the original film it's like it's it's the it's the star trek equivalent of the un-american activities from the from the 1950s actually it's the unfederation activities with the irony being that section 31 is the most unfederation <laughs> idea in in the federation you know it's it's built on a on a you know a code in the federation charter that is is a license to get away with whatever they want really in the name of national security and the fact that section 31 comes out at a time you know in the late 90s when just before the advent of the war on terror. And I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about this in a future episode, about Section 31 and, and, the, under, and the political undercurrent of what that means in terms of the Star Trek universe. But it is, it is the same point. It's the same idea of, of somebody being used and manipulated and questioned 
by a system that itself is corrupt. And in this in this case, in the in the Manchurian Candidate and uh, the Mind's Eye, the idea is that you're taking someone who is inviolate and turning them on, you know, on their on their own people. You know, the whole idea of communism is is about the fear of being infiltrated. It is the fear of of the enemy within. And Raymond Shaw, as the uh, the lead, as the main character in the Manchurian Candidate, you know, he is the the square jawed American hero. You know, he gets the uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor for his service in Korea at the beginning of the film. And then he, you know, he's one of those people who he's seen as completely inviolate. You know, this man is the last person who would ever try and assassinate, assassinate a presidential candidate, you know, and in the mind's eye, it's, it's taking somebody like, and, and it's interesting that they chose Geordie for this, isn't it? Because I mean, apart from the fact he's visor, you know, is, is uniquely allowed, you know, in, in terms of being programmed, you know, the same kind of thing in a different way happens in generations, the, the movie where he's, where Dr. Soren programs his visor so Lursa and Bator can see, you know, inside the Enterprise. He's he's useful in that sense, but it, but Geordie almost seems like he almost seems like one of the last people you'd expect to do this because he is quite as a character, he's quite passive and he's quite neutral and he's quite inoffensive as a person. You know, he's an engineer ultimately. He's very balanced as a person. So it's interesting that you would that you would that you would choose to take someone like Geordie, who nobody would suspect <laughs> As having those kind of, you know, not not that not that he's got anything against Federation, he's brainwashed, but he, you wouldn't you wouldn't look at Geordie and think anything was wrong, and that's that's the interesting difference. Whereas in the, in the Manchurian Candidate, Raymond Shaw is this stock, you know, hero of of the uh, you know the Americans. It's interesting though because Raymond Shaw is also a very unlikable character. Do you know what I mean? He's very arrogant. He's very superior, um, and there's some discussion. Certainly in the novel, there's quite a lot of discussion about why they've chosen him. You know, of all the people in this platoon, why have they, why have they picked him to be the assassin? And what it comes down to, it, the way that the, the sort of chief hypnotist describes it, is he says that they, what they're looking for is resentment. That's what they're going to turn, that's what they're kind of going to draw on. He talks about different candidates they can use for brainwashing. And he says, you know, the, the psychopath isn't quite right and the paranoiac isn't quite right. But someone who has a kind of overwhelming sense of resentment is very easy to turn to to assassination. So that's the kind of the theory there. And, and with Raymond Shaw, there's this sense that basically because he has this very complicated, difficult relationship with this very overbearing mother, his mother has kind of controlled him his entire life. He, he's sort of been a puppet of hers already. And she's also cut him off from the only opportunity that he had for happiness with this, this girl that he had this kind of summer romance with. And she basically put an end to it by... In fact, they don't go into this in the film, but in the novel, she put an end to it by writing to the girl's father and, and saying that he was gay and that, uh, that he had other sort of strange sexual perversions and so on. Uh, and basically, in these terms, which he finds quite humiliating. And there is also this sense, I mean, one of the interesting things about Raymond Shaw is this kind of sexual dimension, that he is a kind of... And this comes across in the film that he's a sort of slightly sexless character. You know, the very first scene of the film, they're in a brothel, uh, but he's not interested in the brothel. He's kind of, they say, they say he's above it. And, and there's this kind of question, you know, what, what is it about him? Why, why is his sort of sexuality appears to be missing? And then, in fact, in the, in the book, this is something which is, is turned on its head by the, the brainwashing. The one boon that they give him is that they kind of remove this sort of impediment, this sort of sexual impediment that he, he's had this kind of sexual paralysis almost. And they, they sort of remove that. And I suppose it's interesting just to think of, I mean, this is very much in the, 
well, it's not even really in the subtext, but it is slightly touched on in the, the mind's eye because there is this whole thing about, you know, we know that Geordie is this character who's hopeless with women. We know that Geordie, he's sort of socially awkward and so on in those situations. And we've got Councillor Troy prodding him and prodding him to find out what was this thing that happened on Risa. And as far as he's concerned, the, the the fantasy that he remembers is exactly what it is in the in the original. It's that he's, you know, he's he's met this girl and they've they've had a wonderful time on Reiser and you know, you know he's had a kind of Commander Riker holiday basically rather than a, a typical Geordie LaForge holiday um, so it's, it's quite interesting that that sort of side of it that kind of sexual dimension is, is sort of ever so lightly touched on there well it's funny you should say that because if, if you were to take the stock look in terms of, of someone like Raymond Shaw and Port that into Star Trek, you know. You, you in in a way, your you, your main candidate for this would be would be William Riker, wouldn't it? You know, in some respects, he he fits the hero. You know, the the suave debonair hero. You know, the some the kind of guy who would go to Riser, you know, for a big sex holiday and then and then come back and um and be brainwashed and be the guy there. You know, it's it's interesting that you choose a character like Geordie over someone like Riker to actually fulfil this role. And go in and and get get to the point where he very nearly uh, he very nearly succeeds. You know, it it it's very very close. <laughs> and you know, the, the the big question is, you know, what would have happened had he managed to to achieve his goal? You know, what would have happened if he'd have been uh, if he'd assassinated this governor? Would he have plunged the Klingons and the Federation into war? And would he have got ultimately what the Romulans wanted, which is a destabilized Klingon Empire? Which they could then, which is which is one of the things that happens in Redemption. Redemption's all about them trying to, you know, undermine the Klingon Empire by you know fomenting a civil war, so they can they can gain a foothold, and that's that's the undercurrent of what they're trying to do here through an assassination, through a political subterfuge aim. Whereas in Redemption, they have to get a little bit more involved, and it becomes more complicated. So the consequences of what would have happened if Geordie had succeeded are very interesting to think about. Like the consequences would have been had Raymond Shaw. And spoilers, he doesn't succeed. <laughs> had he succeeded and killed this presidential candidate, you would have had. And there's a very chilling scene where one character, and we'll try, I'll try and be vague about this, but a character at the end, the ultimate architect behind what's actually going on in the Manchurian Candidate, describes what the aim of of, of, succeed, of succeeding is. And it's effectively you know, establishing an American governmental system which is controlled by... A, communists, and B, effectively a foreign government infiltrating at the highest level of power. And that's a chilling scene, a chilling idea, which would have scared people to death in 1962. And in the Star Trek universe, it's a similar kind of thing. If the Romulans achieve these things and nobody knows they've done it, and it's a random shooter, a patsy, effectively... It's it's a similar interesting thing to consider the the ramifications of. It's interesting. One of the things, just just because we were sort of talking about how unlikely it is that Geordie is the guy who's who's chosen for this. I mean, just thinking briefly about the the other episodes that I mentioned, the the Deep Space Nine and the Voyager episodes. You know, the characters that are chosen in those episodes are Bashir and Tuvok, and they they have something in common. You know, they're both they're they're both sort of slightly inhuman or slightly kind of superhuman. You know, Bashir because he's he's genetically enhanced, and Tuvok because because of his kind of mental discipline and training and, and 
the the character who who basically brainwashes Tuvok, he he says to him that what he the reason he chose him was because as a Vulcan he said you're two different men you're already split into two halves basically the kind of emotional violent part and the kind of rational cool part so there's this kind of dissociation or this this kind of split personality essentially and Bashir again Wayun uh, in in this fantasy it, it turns out it, it isn't real it's not really Wayun but you you know the idea is he says because of your genetically enhanced brain you can compartmentalize different parts of your brain you can sort of uh i think he, he says you can believe one thing but do something else so it's basically he, he can kind of be two separate people in a sense and in terms of sort of real world experiments on mind control and so on they they tended to focus in that direction it's very much you know essentially the same as creating split personalities and when you look at people with split personalities that they, they have some of these features that you know one personality might not be aware of what the other personality is doing and and that's essentially what's going on in these hypnotic scenarios is that you're trying to to construct uh, a personality that can kind of take control or can be put in control and can do things without the the other sort of outward personality being aware of it but obviously Geordie is not like that I mean Geordie is not one of these kind of I mean Tuvok and, and Bashir they also have this slightly aloof quality they're both I mean there are jokes made about Bashir being like a computer being able to calculate things in his head and and not having the kind of human touch I mean the, the very fact that he in the in the episode with the other genetically enhanced people they decide that they shouldn't be fighting the war they should basically surrender is again this kind of very cool detached sort of not quite not quite human and it's interesting that he's contrasted with o'brien in deep space nine in that episode and in many other episodes o'brien's the sort of ultimate earthy down-to-earth kind of human ordinary guy and of course in in this episode in the mind's eye it's o'brien who has to be the victim o'brien is the is the one who has to be killed and i think that's kind of interesting as well because he's sort of he's also a bit like georgie in a sense he's a very sort of you know everyday guy kind of character he's he's not one of these kind of superhuman perfected characters in a sense mm. he, he feels like a very real person somehow and he, and he always is when he becomes a main character you know in deep space nine he he's very resolutely the the guy you can relate to the everyman he's he feels like a 20th century man in the, in the 24th century you know he really does in many ways he's the most human star trek character in some respects of all of them you know he's the most relatable in some ways and yeah, it is interesting that O'Brien would be the victim. Definitely, it's it's establishing the fact that that the Romulans are very prepared to you know kill the very heart of of, of Starfleet and the Federation. In some senses, you know, it's getting to that idea that you know they will kill anyone. They will, you know, they, if if you can kill this guy who is a very earthy person you can kill anybody and it's it's the same it's the same thing with what happens to Raymond Shuri in the Manchurian candidate in the fact he's very calmly told you will kill your you know your your part of your platoon you know a guy who you're friends with who you're supposed to care about and he does it without blinking you know he does it completely you know mind controlled and it, it, again it is that idea that you can if if you can do this you can kill a presidential candidate you can kill the governor of a of a, a klingon territory and it won't matter and you won't blink an eye and because there is that potential idea of fighting back against the control, fighting back against the hypnosis. And in both of these stories, there is a very clear and consistent, you know, focus on making sure that they are very well programmed and that they, you know, in the Manchurian Candidate, they run tests. You know, it's very, very, very cold and calculating. They say, well, one of the controllers is he's not convinced that he's, you know, he's programmed enough. And he says, just kill someone random. 
you know, kill killer killer guy just to, just to prove that he's he is under their control. And it's a very chilling idea that that human life is very disposable to these these architects of of this very sinister mm. plot. And of course, you know, the mind's eye being Star Trek, it's on it's happening on a Romulan holodeck, so it's not he doesn't actually have to kill O'Brien. All he has to do in the real world is to to pour a drink over him. But obviously, you know, but you you still get something of that kind of chilling element of it i think and i suppose it's also the the other reason for it to be o'brien who's the victim is he's not he's not an obvious target he's there's no nothing is to be gained by killing it. if if you kill the captain or do you know what i mean if you kill someone powerful and important and so on there's a kind of political dimension to that it sort of makes sense but o'brien is definitely like the random guy uh who you're going to kill you you know or even in the manchurian candidate they they also as a test to see because it's some years later if the uh, programming is still working they make him kill his boss uh, who's a guy who seems like quite a nice guy who's been quite friendly to him and it, it, you, you know and it's quite it's one of a couple of scenes because because he also ends up killing his father-in-law and it's a similar scene where he goes to see this he goes to see his target and they chat to him and they're being quite friendly and he's acting a little bit strange but they're not really aware of it and there's that kind of tension there uh, and then he you know he basically kills them unexpectedly as far as they're concerned and it's that kind of eeriness i suppose of the fact that he's that he's not himself i suppose and that his interaction with that person is you you know there's something else going on that's that's quite sinister i suppose there were some interesting um facts about the manchurian candidate as a as a movie in the way it was produced as well wasn't they that 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 are kind of you know played you know there's some there's some connection to what the the kind of choices they make in the mind's eye in terms of the the overarching ideas but yeah it's it's got some interesting real life sort of tethers hasn't it the manchurian candidate just in terms of the history of the film i think we tend to think of it as this classic film now you know it's on you know any list of like the i don't know top 50 films from that kind of era or whatever but it wasn't actually a huge success when the film first came out the the book funnily enough was a massive bestseller incredibly successful novel quite well reviewed it it, it got several reviews basically the, the way it was described was as a very good bad book which i suppose is like a kind of uh it's sort of damning with faint praise but basically saying you know this is a, a very readable interesting entertaining work even if it's not necessarily great literature the film actually didn't make its money back. It, d- it didn't do particularly well. Uh, it came out in 1962. And then obviously President Kennedy was assassinated the following year. And after that, the director actually pulled the film because I think it, it was going to go back into cinemas and, and basically said, um, you know, we, we don't want to screen it anymore. And then Frank Sinatra, who's one of the actors in the film, uh, kind of suppressed the film for some time after that. And apparently it wasn't until the late 1980s that the film was ever actually screened again in cinemas and so it's really it's interesting so we think of it as this kind of artifact of the cold war but in a sense it almost had to to disappear throughout the you know the course of the cold war and really only towards the tail end of it did it sort of come out of the shadows and become this kind of uh iconic cultural touchstone that um that we think of and you know i mean i don't know when this episode of tng was made but it's not all that long after that really you know it's 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 this has got to be what 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 year would this be? This this came out at the in May nineteen ninety one. 
Right. So there you go. So again, right, at the, literally right at the tail end of the of the Cold War, you know, around the same time as the Undiscovered Country, which interestingly is a film that it doesn't deal with brainwashing, but that borrows certain kind of visual elements from from the Manchurian Candidate. If you think about the attempted assassination at the end, it's very similar kind of setup, and also plays on this kind of general Red Scare anxiety, not knowing who's working for whom, you know, who's the traitor, who who is working for the other side and so on. I think Leonard Nimoy apparently described it as saying basically this film, we've made the Manchurian Candidate in space. And I think that was definitely an influence, but but not in the kind of, you know, we think of Manchurian Candidate as slang for, uh, you know, a mind-controlled assassin, essentially, which obviously wasn't the case in that film. It is interesting how the the film maybe was a bit too close to reality you know and that there have been instances in uh, in the uh, in in the the real world politics of the cold war where there is an immense amount of very murky very mysterious i mean jfk's assassination alone which is known as the you know the most famous conspiracy theory ever of the fact that you know leah harvey oswald wasn't supposed to have been the shooter that there was the grassy knoll shooter on the grassy knoll and all these things that i'm sure many people have seen you know you have to watch oliver oliver stone's jfk you know to get all of it really it's the very idea that there are forces working within your own government and your own system that are working to undermine you. And, and you know, the, the big fear within, within the, you know, you talked about McCarthy and, and we talked about the un-American hearings. The big fear within the Cold War was this idea of that, that you know, that, in, that in invasion within. And, and it is something that, that in the Star Trek universe, at the very end of the Cold War, seems like it's a safe thing to discuss and a safe thing to talk about and to present in the prism of Star Trek. You know, as, as we say, these, the, these two examples, The Mind's Eye and The Undiscovered Country, came out in 1991, which was when the Cold War ended. You know, when the Berlin War came down, the Soviet Empire, the Soviet Union broke up. And subsequently, you know, you have re- regression, you have um, in, you know, Inquisition, you have these in the 90s when... You know, and looking back, the 90s is almost like a, a peaceful decade in some respects. There were still wars going on and flashpoints, but it's not considered... It's, it's almost like a time of peace, generally, in some respects, the 90s looking back. Going back uh, more sort of into the 1960s, so we talked about JFK. Obviously, you know, you mentioned the conspiracy theories about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Was he a patsy? Was there, was there a conspiracy involved? Was there someone else involved? I read an interesting article actually basically saying, did did Lee Harvey Oswald watch this film? Um, and was that one reason why... Uh, and then quite a persuasive argument is made for the fact that he almost certainly did watch this film because apparently he was a big uh, cinema goer and it played at his local cinema a lot and uh, it was very likely that he'd gone and seen this film. And Frank Sinatra was actually quite good friends with Kennedy and so that may be one reason that he was then keen to sort of suppress the film later was that that maybe he felt guilty about it and felt that it had kind of inspired that even more striking though is the assassination of kennedy's brother robert kennedy where actually the assassin who was this palestinian man who was said to have behaved quite strangely by a lot of people to be sort of looking into space and so on you know kind of looking through people and he basically claimed later on in his defense that he had been a manchurian candidate that that was basically the argument that he'd been programmed uh, allegedly there was a woman present in a polka dot dress and when he saw the polka dot dress that was his kind of trigger in, in the manchurian candidate i mean we don't we don't get this in the um in the mind's eye to the same extent in the manchurian candidate uh it, it's all about playing cards and the the queen of diamonds is the card that basically puts him puts raymond Shaw in a state where he will do whatever he's whatever he's told and in order to get that card in front of him he has this kind of key 
the sort of key phrase to trigger him is is why don't you pass a little time by playing a game of solitaire and it's interesting in the in the teaser to the mind's eye actually i I feel like just almost there's a tiny uh little nod to that because geordie's sitting in the shuttlecraft you know with this three-hour journey to riser and he asks for a game to pass the time. And that's the expression that he uses, which is the exact expression that's repeated over and over and over again uh, in the film and is the kind of trigger for Raymond Shaw. I'm sure that was deliberate, that they that they put that in there as a kind of little nod to sort of w- where this story was coming from. So that was the defence, really, of the, of the man who assassinated, well, as far as we know, assassinated Kennedy's brother, was that, that he wasn't really doing it. And he, and he claimed that he didn't really know where he was or what he was doing, that he thought he was at a rifle range, and, and that he really wasn't himself. And, and, you know, there were these attempts in that period. I mean, the, the US government, they had this, uh, the CIA ran this thing called MK Ultra, which was experimenting with mind control and, uh, you, you know, with, with these kind of things. And there was a lot of talk about the communists doing similar things as well. And then I think a lot of that material was destroyed uh, when that project was closed down. This is veering into your kind of X-Files territory, I think, really, Tony. <laughs> but, um, but you, you know, so there is some kind of basis for these things. We don't know to what extent any of these conspiracy theories have any actual grounding in reality, but they're in the culture. And I suppose that's the thing is, uh, in a way, it doesn't really matter whether these things are true or not from our perspective, because we're sort of looking from a cultural perspective. If those ideas are out there, if those beliefs are out there, if those possibilities are kind of being considered then they have a lot of power and they have a lot of influence on culture. And I mean, even, you know, more recently, you know, President Trump, the big debate about President Trump, I mean, his relationship with Russia, this is, you know, being very topical, seems to be shifting a bit now, but there was this great anxiety. Was was he a Manchurian candidate? Was he basically, uh, you know, Putin's president? It might not be literally mind control and, and so on, but, you know, this whole idea whether these compromising tapes about these things he'd been doing with Russian prostitutes and so on, you know, was he someone who was exactly, you know, a foreign agent in the White House, essentially, with or without total understanding of what he was doing? You know, so these are issues that have kind of have resurfaced and that continue to kind of resonate. I suppose it continues to be a a terror, a kind of particularly maybe in America. I mean, you look at, say, Homeland, uh, it's kind of the same story. That's very, you know, very much kind of Manchurian candidate thing. And you were talking about who's the soldier who's the least likely to turn against their country. That was exactly the the story there really wasn't it was you know he was this kind of hero this war hero he ended up going into politics as well um so kind of bridging those two worlds and in fact you know was he or wasn't he going to be a suicide bomber and and that kind of terror i suppose which is very much kind of tied to that sort of cold war terror of do you really know anyone and can you trust anyone and and what are their real motives and are they secretly hiding their real agenda or, or their or you know even from themselves in this instance it's a fear that's never really gone away you know you talked about the more you know the recent topical you know elements to this it is it has always remained very prevalent especially in american culture i think you know and right through you know the the height of conspiracy interesting conspiracy theory throughout the 90s you know you mentioned the x-files which is my bread and butter in terms of podcasting but yes it's um it's something that's never quite gone away and yeah, that's why it's interesting in from through the prism of Star Trek because there are there are things in the mind's eye as well where there is still the political thing elements rumbling on. I mean, one thing that really struck me was how Krios, the colony, there is an analogy to Korea in my eyes as well because you have you have this idea of that the Klingons are concerned that the Federation are supplying the rebels in Krios working against the Klingon government with arms. 
And there's, there, there's that scene where the governor confronts Picard and Riker with what are Federation weapons, which obviously have been have been sne- you know sneaked in by the Romulan influence somehow. You know they've got their hands at hold hand on a cache you know of weapons, and also the you know the, the Klingon working inside the conspiracy as well. Who we later find out will have set helped set this up. And Picard's there saying the Federation is not in the habit of supplying rebels with weapons, and this is the idea that the that Krios, given it's in a very politically sensitive position in the in the Alpha Quadrant, is. In the same sense as Korea, and it's interesting that the Manchurian Candidate starts in the Korean War, which was all about a, a pitched Cold War battle between two superpowers trying to keep a, a contained hold on territory that could allow one or the other to have a foothold on, on a specific piece of land. It's the same, the same argument with Vietnam later on. It's about, they were, in, in some respects, they were similar wars. It's all about proxy countries and proxy powers trying to decide the fates of smaller countries or in this case in Star Trek colonies. So th- there's, there's lots of things that, you know, in the Korea situation is, is still in around. And if anything, it's even more potent, you know, even uh, very, very recently as well. So it, there are, there are even more parallels and analogies in terms of what they do in the Star Trek universe to what went on then and are still going on now, really. Well, definitely. I mean, funnily enough, you know, only a couple of months ago, we had the, the half brother of Kim Jong Un being assassinated by not someone that was mind controlled, but, but, but by a patsy, essentially. That seems to be the story that's come out, isn't it? Is that these, these girls didn't know, they didn't know what they were doing. They thought they were taking part in a kind of stunt, uh, for like a TV show or something. And they ended up killing this guy because they, they did what they were told by, by people who, who handed them, you, you know, deadly chemicals to kill him with. So very much that kind of, I mean, that, that, feels like a, a total kind of cold war sort of fantasy story doesn't it you know this this which i suppose you know in some ways uh korea is you know north korea south korea they're, they're, they're slightly still locked in that kind of 1950s 1960s world in some ways they kind of haven't caught up with the rest of the world um and so we see that playing out you, you know even in uh 2017 <laughs> it's true it's true the the more you dis- the more you investigate history and you look into history the more you realize that the world hasn't changed enormously that there are a lot of the same conflicts are still playing out just in different different ways and different systems in some respects finally duncan do you think that the mind's eye is a good adaptation as you said earlier of the manchurian candidate do you think as a star trek episode and as an episode tapping into these real world parallels and analogies that it works well one of the things i think is quite interesting about this is is because we are obviously we're talking about kind of adapting from one not so much from one medium to another but from one story and kind of tra- translating i suppose we might say it's sort of translating a story into a different context i mean i have to say i hadn't seen the uh film of the manchurian candidate uh until recently and so last year when i did my from there to here rewatch i i rewatched the mind's eye and I, I really liked it and i have to say having seen the manchurian candidate i liked it slightly less because i suppose it's kind of satisfying to see these different elements and to spot the parallels and so on but it slightly took the heart out of it for me a, a bit in some way so there's this kind of interesting question is there an element of like with a photocopier the more times you copy it does it does it kind of lose something if it, if, it, if it's too much just trying to be a copy of the original thing i mean in some ways i i found the like the deep space nine story that kind of picks up on some of these ideas it, you know is, is much more loosely inspired by the film but in some ways therefore uh, i found that more interesting as an episode but i think the mind's eye i think it is a good episode it's a decent episode it's quite tense it's got some interesting ideas in there, but it maybe isn't as interesting 
as the film i mean the film is is really fascinating really amazing piece of work the novel i think is actually surprisingly good i mean i i kind of read it thinking that it was going to be a crappy novel and, and the film was much better i actually think the novel it's it's sort of pulpy but it's it's really gripping and, it, and it's got some interesting it goes further than the film in a lot of ways i mean there's a an incestuous uh, storyline in the novel that they obviously didn't dare do any more than hint at uh, in the film which sort of makes sense of, of some of the things and it, and it has a more interesting ending i think because in the film basically what happens is the frank sinatra character breaks raymond shaw's programming and then at, th- this is going to be a massive spoiler by the way if you want to watch this film you know switch off for the next <laughs> few seconds uh, he, he he ends up on his of his own volition killing uh, both his mother and the um the senator the mccarthyist senator senator iceland in the original novel he's not doing that out of personal choice he's doing that because his friend marco who's the one sort of investigating the whole situation has reprogrammed him and has basically you know he's learned what the situation is he's learned how to do it he's learned how to use these cards and so on and he basically programs him first of all to kill the two of them and then to kill himself and one of the final lines of the of the novel is he say he says uh, no electric chair for a medal of honor man and there's this kind of idea of the army looking after its own and in raymond shaw's case that means basically or you know telling him to kill himself which i think is a much more interesting sort of darker ending and more in keeping with the kind of with the feel of the film but so obviously there were elements that they you know to some degree softened in in the adaptation but I think, I think the mind's eye does a, a decent job. As you say, it is interesting that as a copy, you know, you're always going to get certain elements. And it's not a direct copy. And there are some of the more interesting elements of the Manchurian Candidate in, from a story perspective aren't in the mind's eye simply for the fact that it's Star Trek and it can't quite do all that stuff. And it's not exactly the same story. But I think it, it, does, it does its job well. It tells quite a, a contained, interesting and exciting political thriller story. And I think it's, you know, it's good for that. It's good from that perspective. As, as we say, you know, it introduces a few continuing story elements and I think does does what it says in the tin, you know, in terms of, of the adaptation it's trying to do and has some interesting, you know, ideas and some interesting scenes. So I, th- I, th- I think it's good. And I, it will be interesting going through, as we said earlier, going through Star Trek and, and occasionally doing episodes about Star Trek episodes that are connected to movies and are maybe doing a copy from a movie or are you know, taking elements and, and, and talking about that. The Mind's Eye is a much better copy of the Manchurian Candidate than the 2004 Manchurian Candidate is a copy of the Manchurian Candidate. I mean, that is a, is a you know, a weird and slightly pointless updating of the story. It, it translates much better to the 24th century, oddly, than it translates to 2004, I think, where they, they kind of reframe it in terms of the, the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War and, and, and as this kind of Gulf War syndrome story. And it, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really ever quite ever quite add up one of the interesting things they're talking about this idea of copying and repurposing and so on is that something that i think was only discovered relatively recently and discovered through uh software programs that analyze literary texts was the extent to which the original novel of the manchurian candidate is itself in quite large extent plagiarized from other sources and basically a lot of those early reviews, you know, I mentioned these early reviews that said this is a really good, bad book. And one of the things that some of those reviewers picked up on, but they couldn't really explain, was that there's a real kind of clash of styles in the book. It sort of veers in one direction or another. It kind of throws everything in. It has that kind of, that sort of thrillerish aspect that you get with, say, a Michael Crichton book, um, who was the author of Jurassic Park and, you know, other n- novels like that, um, created Westworld as well and so on, where, where he'll kind of throw in a load of science or a load of kind of background reading or a load of kind of, 
sort of random stuff gets thrown in there. And the, the novel of The Manchurian Candidate definitely has that sort of feel in terms of the brainwashing and so on. But it also lifts whole descriptions from other books. Um, the relationship between Raymond and his mother, which is really at the heart of the whole story, um, there's a crucial passage sort of describing that relationship that is almost word for word lifted from I, Claudius, um, about uh, a, a character in that and, and his mother. So there's this kind of interesting thing, you know, we sort of talk about this idea of like repurposing this story and, and taking this story and what's what Star Trek doing, taking this this story and adapting it for its own ends. But in a sense, the whole thing, that's that's what it is. That's what the Manchurian Candidate was originally, was this kind of work of collage almost from other sources. What's interesting as well is that the, the title of The Mind's Eye actually comes from Shakespeare, uh, from Hamlet at one scene one, in fact, which is a line that says, a moat it is to trouble the mind's eye. So it's it, it's interesting how there are these you know it, there are these in both stories in both Manchurian Candidate and this there are these grabs from from classical literature from from different different areas so it, it's 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 an interesting episode and it's an interesting book movie that I, I would definitely go and check out you know I mean we've we've spoiled certain elements of it <laughs> but it's still it's still certainly from my perspective I know you've read the book and I haven't but for the movie the 1962 movie is excellent you know it's a really well put together film. And it will it will give you if you you know if you watch the Mind's Eye and you're a fan of this episode it will give you some extra context as we've discussed if you go back and watch that film so I highly recommend it. That's a, a look at the Manchurian Candidate and the Mind's Eye so uh, check those both out. I'm sure you've watched the Mind's Eye guys, but uh, do check out the Manchurian Candidate. Um, we're going to be back for some more historical and cultural analysis in the Star Trek universe uh, very soon. But uh, of course, our discussions on primitive culture aren't the only thing going on on Trek FM, so let's have a look at what else is happening right now on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. It's interesting how they're doing the casting, but I think it would be nice to actually have two ships involved, because one thing that I feel Star Trek has long suffered from, even with Deep Space Nine, which did try to break out of it a bit, is that small world syndrome. Standard Orbit. And then they kept calling me. They said, oh, okay, what do you want your writer's credit to read? I said, oh, I wanted to read William Stape, whatever, and Stape. And I wanted to put my initial in there, whatever, my bell. She's like, okay, whatever. And then I remember once they called and I said, could it read story by? And they're like, no, <laughs> you know, because that's a different level of pay. And I have to pay you a lot more. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. So that was a little naivete, a little bit, you know. The Orb. This is another thing that we're, we're seeing all over the world. But this whole idea that just because something is hard, we should avoid it. But that is absolutely untrue. I mean, just look at your life. Look at my life. I'll look at anybody's life. And the, the things where people have learned the most have been the hard things. To the journey! Yeah, she's like, trust me, Tuvok, I can control it. And Tuvok, last time you said you could control it, you almost melted my brain. <laughs> it was an accident, I promise. And this time, she doesn't almost melt his brain, so she's definitely grown as a person. <laughs> Warp 5. I don't know. I mean, based on, you know, after watching Enterprise, I mean, yeah, Cisco, it went from, it went Cisco, Picard, Janeway, um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, that's all the captains. Um, oh, wait, there was this one know, guy named Kirk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just realized that. <laughs> so it went uh, Cisco, Kirk, Picard. Where did you and then find Taylor. this guy, Floyd? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter Duncan at Barrett's Books and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.